I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's good to be with all of you once again. I'm excited to introduce my guest to you today. His name is Thomas and he's in studio with me today and he's here to talk about his story, his 180 degree turn since going into recovery from a 30 year addiction to pornography that started when he was eight years old. He actually wrote his story in the book, Dark to Light, and he wants to give people hope that it's possible to escape from the dark trap of pornography and live in the light free from lies and shame and lust. And Thomas is awesome. And he's here to share his journey and help other people enter that path of healing and light so they can heal their lives, heal their relationships. And I think you'll really enjoy listening to his story. And so in this first episode today, we're going to just listen to him tell his story and talk about it. And I found it so inspirational and I'm just so glad he was willing to come down and do this. And then we'll do another episode next week where he talks specifically more about his work as a sponsor and supporting other guys specifically in recovery. And there's so much there in that interview as well. It was just a real pleasure, a real joy to talk with him. And I'll put links to all his resources in the show notes because he's creating some great stuff. And I definitely want you guys to be aware of it. Okay, let's jump right into my interview with Thomas. All right, well, welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jeff. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, it's so cool. You drove all the way down from Salt Lake to mm-hmm. to St. George here, four hour drive to come join me in live in studio live, which is super cool. This doesn't happen very often. Most of mine are on Zoom, so it's just awesome to have a, a live body in the studio with me. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So, so really quickly, people who don't know you or your book, you go by Thomas 2.0, and I think it's such a cool pen name. I mean, it definitely caught my attention and. Can you just say for a minute why you chose that, what that's about for you? Sure. So my name is Thomas, but after recovery started, I went through so many changes in my life that my wife one day said, hey, you're Thomas 2.0. <laughs> and I just loved it. It made me feel so good getting yeah. that validation from her. Yeah. And so when I decided to write my story, that's what I decided to go by. Yeah, that's so cool. So in some ways, she's sort of like, assigned it to you as like, almost like you said, a validation, a, like evidence that, that you were different. You weren't the same guy yeah. that she was experiencing you in a totally different way. It's exactly right. And it just felt so right. And I wanted to keep my anonymity when I wrote the book. And so I figured sure. that would be a, a good way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And yeah, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's funny. I have a lot of partners whose husbands have gone through a recovery process and they'll they'll often remark in one way or another something like, "Where has this other guy been this whole time? <laughs> like, was it was he in there the whole time? You know, because you get covered up with all the the secrecy, the the shame, the hiding, the emotional, like all the stuff that you know eventually gets gets repaired and uncovered, and all of a sudden you do feel like a totally different person, which is the whole point. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, good. I'm so excited to hear to, to talk about your story. I love having. I love having people on the podcast who are willing to share their personal journey. I think it helps people so much. And, you know, your book, of course, is a deep dive into that. 
but it's it's awesome to I, I have so many people, especially women, betrayed women. Um, I've had some some people, men and women, who are also in their own recovery process that have genuinely sat down and looked me in the eyes and said, "Is this even possible? Do people really get better? Does this even? I mean, am I just? I don't know anyone who's actually healed from um, an addiction or from betrayal." And so a lot of people sometimes uh, get very hopeless and get scared that this is just going to be the rest of their life or this isn't ever going to work. But here we are talking about this with someone who's been in the process for a number of years and you've got good news for us. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy to, to have your story on here. So let's dive in. I'm going to give you a lot of the, the microphone time here. I really want to hear from you. I want you to share with my audience your story, your recovery story, your marriage story and and of course share what you want with your partner with your wife and what you guys have been through so why don't you just give us the overview and jump right in oh well thanks jeff and i feel like a very normal guy yeah and uh maybe what's special about my story is that it's so average and people can i i hope people do relate to my story and my wife's recovery Mm -hmm. um and that's one reason I wrote the book is to share that and to let people know that recovery is possible. Yeah. And so, yeah, thanks for calling that out. Mm-hmm. So my history is that I was um, in musical productions as a young boy. I loved to sing. I was a boy soprano and uh, was in um, those musical productions and that was a great opportunity, but it had a downside. Those were some pretty highly sexualized environments. Mm. And backstage in those days, there was a lot of pornography hidden around. Really? Yep. Yeah, wow. You know, the stagehands and the people controlling the lighting and the sound, they'd hide things some places. And wow. as an eight-year-old boy, I was curious about those images. Yeah. And I started to make a game out of trying to find them. And eight, 10 years old, 12 years old, those behaviors continued began sexually acting out around 12 years old. And those behaviors continued through my teen years. Yeah. I cleaned up well enough to go on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, came home, still had issues. Yeah. And swept it under the rug. Mm -hmm. And I was in denial about the seriousness of my own behaviors. I did not realize that I was using sexually acting out lust as a coping mechanism to handle all of life's negative emotions and to reward myself for positive emotions. That was part of it. Right. And so, so prior to that, had there been any sort of like help or support or discussion from anybody about your struggles with this? Or was it just basically like, hey, I did these things. Okay, you're not doing them anymore. Okay, you're clear to go on this mission. And then you came home and nobody, they, there was no sort of oversight, accountability, support of any kind. You know, there was some but it was compartmentalized. So I would go to an ecclesiastical leader, my bishop, and I would confess to him something, but it was just a, the, that incident. And then oh, right. a couple of years later, I'd confess to a different bishop, another little incident. But I didn't see the pattern. I didn't see the string. And nobody, because I, because in addition to my sexual addiction, I began an addiction of lying about it. Yeah. And hiding it. And to be honest, that's been a completely difficult, separate journey of its own is quit lying about stuff, even the little things in my life, because that's been my, my modus operandi for so many years is 
I do something bad, I hide it. And, and um, so, yeah, that's kind of the path. Yeah. And I love that you separated that out as a separate process because it really is. So, so many people that I work with stopping, you know, the, the sexual acting out behavior is actually in some cases easier than all of the thinking errors and the, the patterns and just the ways of sort of interfacing with the world that are really about self-preservation, self-protection and managing shame and pain and all these other things. That stuff is harder to kind of overcome mm-hmm. long-term without some real accountability and oversight. So yeah, I love that you identified that as a separate process that you're working on. Thanks. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. It has been a journey. And, and soon after that, after coming home a couple of years after that, I met my wife and mm-hmm. we fell in love. And that was a, a good time in my life of relative sobriety, falling in love with her and looking forward to my marriage with her. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, I absolutely believed that once I got married, this problem would go away. And that just obviously didn't happen. Right. Um, so year after year after year in our marriage, behaviors were continuing to happen and sweeping things under the rug, stuffing things in the closet, all continued to happen until 2016. Okay. And then in 2016, there was just such a huge wedge in between us that one evening my wife just told me, I don't know what's wrong, but this isn't going to work. I I don't know what's happening. She had no idea. She didn't. She could feel it deep down. Sure. I believe all women can feel it. I agree. I see that all the time, but but she consciously didn't have any information about this struggle at all. No. Okay. And I had done a pretty good job as a manipulator to tell her that nothing has nothing wrong had happened and Yeah. That includes the whole concept of gaslighting. Yes. And um I just put up a facade and I was one person to everybody else, but she, she was seeing through the cracks mm-hmm. and she just said, I think I'm, I, I think I'm done. And that's the moment where I said, no, I have something I want to tell you. Oh, and so she was done with like the marriage. Yeah. She was, she was out. She of was here. like, this is intolerable. <laughs> it was that bad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And she had already had a lot of, I had wrecked a lot of damage on her with, being around people mm-hmm. uh, in the public, at church especially, and just made made her feel very unsafe. And she didn't know what was happening to her. She didn't have people that she was talking to either that could be like, well, has your husband perhaps been looking at pornography? Nothing like that, you know? Right. So when when she said that to me, that was the final straw in my life. Because I had gone to God many times and said, please take this away from me. I don't want to be this guy, but couldn't, I, I always went back to it, you know? So when she said that, I said, I have something I need to tell you. And it all started coming out. Wow. Wow. From the time I was a little eight-year-old boy, I started just telling her a lot of stuff. And that process of honesty was super, super hard. Oh, yeah. At times, I, over the ensuing months, when she was asking me questions and I was telling her the truth, there were many moments where I felt like I would rather die than tell her the truth. Um, and the truth took a while to come out. I did yeah. step four uh, of the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where you write a moral inventory of your life. Right. And uh, I wasn't 100% thorough and honest. So I wrote a second step four. 
And even then, there was a little bit I was still holding back. And when she discovered that, when she realized that, that's when she she needed something more to prove that I was honest. And that's when we did the therapeutic polygraph test. Mm. And that really helped a lot. Yeah. Because then she knew for sure, based on scientific evidence, which lines I had and hadn't crossed. Okay. Yeah, because you, you know, you open up that possibility that basically nothing you're saying is true. You know, when you when you've obviously lived a whole life full of lies, but then also continued up the game going forward with it, manipulating, lying over and over and over again. Yeah, it just becomes unbearable. So um, even in recovery. Well, right. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I was I was two and a half years into recovery when some stuff bubbled to the top. Oh my, really? So this wasn't like months after? Uh, yeah, no, this was like two and a half years after. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I had already done yeah. a step four inventory, which took probably six months. And then I, and then about a year later, I did another step four inventory to just kind of yeah. get it all out. And that um, took another three or four months. And then there was still stuff I couldn't, you know, the, the, the essay white book talks about us being only as sick as our secrets. Right. And, uh, right. So she, she could feel that. Yeah. I, and again, it, it's, I believe a gift many women have that they have that intuition to know when, when things aren't quite right. I agree. I hear this all the time. Um, I, I mean, I've lived this in my own marriage, right? I mean, this is, I've been married for 25 years and I've experienced that intuition and that discernment that comes up. And, you know, the, the key to nurturing that both, you know, in, in your case and your wife nurturing that in herself, you can do it alone and, and hold to your guns on that. But boy, it certainly helps when you have a spouse that tells the truth and validates your your feelings, right? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of telling you that what you're feeling is not correct, which goes back to that gaslighting you were talking about, which is really throws off her sense of her compass, her sense of discernment, her own trusting her own feelings because she was dead on. She was right the whole time. She was right the whole yeah. time. Yeah. And that gaslighting term, I think it would be interesting to talk about that for a second. Yeah, um, we can talk about that. That term, it, it comes from a play that was written in 1938. And the author of the play has the antagonist be this man who has a really dark past and he's hiding a bunch of stuff. And the play is set in the 1880s before there was electricity in homes and they had gas lights to light their homes at night. And when, when his wife started finding out things about his past, he started playing with her mind and trying to make her feel like she was insane. And one of the things that he would do was he would turn up and down the gas and make it dark and light in the home. And then when he'd walk in the room, she's like, did you see the gas? It just went, it just went dark and then it came back and he'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so making her feel like she was crazy. And he did that because he didn't want to face his past. Right. He was willing to make his wife feel like she was crazy to kind of drive her insane yes. in order to protect himself and his sordid past. Right. Yeah. And so many people, you know, we throw that term around gaslighting. It's It's been around a long time, obviously, but but a lot of the times I think it's misunderstood. Some people think it's just basically like lying. Mm -hmm. It's it's it has It has a much more sinister manipulative, cruel, you know, sort of angle to it. Yeah. It's kind of like really, <laughs> it's lying, but it's, it's like 
dishonest, manipulative lying. Yeah, like at someone's expense, <laughs> like at a, in a deeper way, like a deep commitment to the to the lie mm-hmm. over you know over the safety and sanity of another person. Right, and that's just so so critical to understand and own when that's happening because it's so yeah. damaging. It is damaging, and yeah. and it's not like I I said to myself. Oh man, she's on to me. I better gaslight her. It was just like a natural right. or unnatural reaction of the addict brain for me That's to right. just try to be like, I didn't flirt with that woman. What are you talking about? Yeah, self jealous woman. Right. You know? Self preservation at all costs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 So I, if we can go back real quick to the that that initial discovery or I guess disclosure to confession. Mm-hmm. When you guys talked about that. You're saying that took months for everything to come out. So this was like a staggered disclosure, as we might call it. Oh, yes. Okay. It it was a staggered. But at that point in time, all I knew um, is that it was time for me to be honest with her. Yeah, okay. And all she knew was, I need honesty or I cannot stay in this marriage. Totally. So at this point, we didn't have any therapists guiding us. We had an awesome bishop, mm-hmm. but we didn't know like this term staggered yeah. disclosure or trickle truth. Like none of that was even in our vocabulary. We just, we just did what we both needed to do. And for me, that was to share. And for her, that was to ask questions and to process and to get safe. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And so this process for you guys of getting the truth out I mean, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't recommend taking two and a half, three years to to tell the truth. But I recognize it takes time to get a full disclosure and do a full inventory. We don't, you can't rush that process. Mm-hmm. But what would you have done differently, knowing what you know now in the beginning? What would you say to people in terms of how to get that out? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that I wish we probably would have had some professional help to k- kind of get everything out at once. Yeah. Because yeah. if I would have had a therapist that would have told me like, hey, I know addicts and I know you guys tend to hide some stuff. Is this it? Really? Is this all the hard stuff? Was there anything else? And if I would have had somebody probe me like that, I mean, I was terrified about telling my wife some of those things. And Oh, yeah. And it was just, it, it proved too difficult for me, but it also proved ruinous because the, that trickle truth. Yeah. Know? Took anyway. So just to have that accountability and structure on the front end would have been helpful. to really hold you in that process to look at yourself and, and keep that pressure on because your ability and motivation to hide was so refined. Yeah. yeah. It was ingrained in me since I was eight. Right. You learned, yeah, the double life. I can I can hide my reality from a very young age. It's a hard thing to to give up. But yeah. I'm yeah, I'm glad that you eventually came out with everything and and I'm really impressed with your wife's commitment to the truth that she wasn't just going to settle for half truths or partial story right she she was like no i need everything <laughs> i couldn't agree with you more yeah because that takes courage to totally to be able to hear someone's full story yeah and it always i know everyone's recovery journeys are a little different husband and wife relationships are so sensitive and different but i i get a little nervous when i give support to guys and they tell me Oh no, my wife doesn't want to know any details. She says, this is my, my thing and I need to just get better and let her know when I'm healed. Mm-hmm. That makes me nervous because I, that wasn't my experience. Uh, my wife was very into the details and needed to know everything. And so that's what I know. 
but I am grateful for that in her. Yeah. I think, I think it takes a lot of courage to not only listen to it, but also expect it. I think so many partners get so worn down and tired from basically going up against the darkness of the addiction, the lies, the secrecy, the hiding that they can almost just sort of, you know, just kind of cry uncle and be like, okay, fine. Like I'll just, I'll just live like parallel lives with you, or I'll just kind of live beneath our privilege. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is the best it can be. And maybe it's not that bad because, you know, and I, I just love that she was willing to put it all on the line and just say, no, like, I know that we're capable of so much more and I'm not willing to settle living with just the uncertainty of what's even real. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I, I totally agree with that. But one of the consequences of that is that she did feel betrayed. I mean, the oh, more yeah. you learn, the more you do feel oh, that yes. betrayal. And yes, when we talk about recovery, I think it's important to identify that there is my recovery as the addict, of course, but then my wife has her recovery and then our marriage needs recovery. That's right. And those are three kind of separate endeavors. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your wife's process, if you can. I obviously you have to speak for her. She's not here, but I, I'm sure she you you know, you have her blessing to, to share based on what we've talked about previously. But yeah, tell us a little bit about her process. Yeah, I do have her blessing in talking about that. I'm grateful for that. But yeah, my my wife has also gone through a, a journey of her own of of healing and recovery that has involved the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints spouse and family classes. And she was an attendee for a year, and then she facilitated for a year, and that was very helpful for her. She's also done professional counseling in a, in, uh, with a variety of counselors and did uh, EMDR for herself, and that was helpful. She's done therapeutic yoga. and just, Oh, I love that. Yeah. And just a number of other self-care things that she's been able to initiate in her life, including giving support to other women and other women and teenagers even who have are going through these struggles and being able to give them support is is good for her. Yeah, that's remarkable. And you know, I can't read the minds of all my listeners, but I, I have to imagine that some of you out there might be thinking, why in the world would she have put up with this or stayed with this for that long, especially when he wasn't forthcoming, multiple disclosures and you know, even just lying and hiding to her for what, more than 10 years in the marriage? 16 years. 16 years. You guys have mm -hmm. been married for 20... 21. 21 years. So for, for 16 years, she was totally in the dark. Mm -hmm. What would you say about that? I mean, I, I know that's kind of a strange question to ask you for her, but from what you know about her and what you've talked about in your journey together, what kept her going? What kept her moving forward with this when, you know, by all uh, sort of odds, like she was, you know, she was somewhat outnumbered by a lot of your coping strategies. What kept her going? Gosh, I wish she was here to answer I know, that question. Right? I know. It's That's really... a tough one for me, but I, I do feel like her hope okay. in, in our marriage kept her going. I think I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say part of it was because of our children. She, uh, that's true. She loves our children and she wants our children to have a stable life. And that's I not think. a bad reason. That's not. But not it's, a bad, I, I get it, long term, it's probably- can, it can't be the main reason. It can diminish a person. Yeah you, yeah. you definitely have to weigh everything out. But that, yeah, absolutely. Like that is, that is probably one of the, you know, the, just the, the stability, the family, the kind of like not just dismantling this whole thing 
and giving it some time to see what will happen is mm-hmm. a really common thing. And a lot of women feel, I don't know if the word is guilty or they, they feel mixed about whether that's a good enough reason or if they should just protect themselves. But I just have a lot of respect and I really do honor anyone who just is trying to put that above themselves just to give us some time. That That's a very difficult thing to do. And it's a huge sacrifice. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. I think to sum up the answer to that question, why did she stay with me? Yeah. I think it has to do with her faith in God okay. and our mutual vision and hope mm-hmm. of eternal life, mm-hmm. but also because she loves me. I know she loves me and I'm so grateful for that. That's big. And then also for the children. So that's some pretty big reasons. Big there. reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And really, and like you said, living on promises, living on hope, Yes, you know, hoping and trusting that that this would eventually get back on its feet. And she must have seen your efforts. I mean, I, I don't get the impression listening to you talk about this and reading your book that you just kind of sat on your hands for, for you, you got to work, right? I did. Yeah. I, I really She must did. have seen that and, and noticed that you were serious about this. And she could feel a change that yeah. I was changing. And before uh, I, the egoism and narcissism, she was seeing changes there, turning into more humility and helping out around the house and quitting things that I used to do for myself and spending more time with her and the children. And there was a lot of natural changes that occurred that I, I believe told her that things were really changing. Yeah. And I think that's an important point just for those of you who are listening about, you know, again, as you're trying to weigh, do I stay? Do I go? What do I measure? And I think these kinds of day-to-day things, these shifts, some of them are are more measurable than others. I mean, if you've got someone who's not been very engaged and all of a sudden they're listening more, they're spending more time, they're cutting things out, they're becoming less selfish. Those things, I mean, that's that stuff matters and that's that stuff you can't fake. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that those are real things that, you know, you can count on and obviously time and sustainability and so on, but I just think it's important to recognize it, you know, to go from a life of secrecy and darkness and addiction to a fully healthy, connected, open individual, you know, is is going to be made by lots of these little changes. And those are important to observe and watch. And they, I think they do keep people in, in the process, both the, the betrayed partner and kind of the marriage that feeds both of those. Yeah. And when she could see those changes in me, some of those changes weren't just helping her and her recovery, but they were also helping our marriage yes. and our marriage recovery. Right. And so that was so helpful. We started a practice of daily accountability, which is step 10 in the 12-step program, where I would share with her emotional spikes, triggers. Yes. And as I was able to get better at sharing those things with her and just being open with her, it did a couple of things. It obviously brought us closer because she was hearing truth day after day after day. Yeah. But it also made it so that I, throughout my day, I was being more aware of my own behaviors and I was analyzing, is this a behavior I want to tell my wife about later? No. Therefore, I'm not going to do that action. Right. And it would bring me an awareness, be like, uh, no, red light, I'm not going to do A, B, or C because that's not going to go well at daily accountability. Some people may call that fear-based, but actually it's accountability-based and it and it's helping me change my behaviors. So now I can tell her hard things because most of the time it's not because of something I've initiated. 
life happens, things happen in life, but I'm not the one pursuing those things mm-hmm. or instigating those things anymore. So daily accountability has gotten much easier over the years. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I love that distinction. And you're right. You, you start to practice like sharing discomfort. Initially, it's like, the, it, and I think it's harder, like the stuff you're doing that's causing damage and stuff like that. That's way harder to share that stuff. But I, I love that you're just leaning into making a practice of just sharing the pain, the discomfort, the struggles, the challenges. That's our material. That's what we have to work with. Yeah. And what's wonderful about where we're at now mm-hmm. with more than five years of sobriety and recovery is that it's not a one-way street. I don't feel like I'm checking in with her. We're checking in with each other. She's also sharing with me her emotions. Beautiful. Right. And she didn't feel safe to do that before. Yeah. And now she can. And that really brings a lot of connection. Yeah. Say more about that for a second. I, I love this idea because a lot of couples start off in, in a very parallel recovery process. You know, in, in the 12-step community, they often talk about, you know, two sides of the street type of thing. Yeah. And a lot of couples don't ever feel like they know how to like merge those two sidewalks. <laughs> they often just kind of go through feeling like they're just kind of watching each other do their work, but they don't really feel like they're sharing anything. And so this whole idea of your wife sharing and feeling safe to share with you, what was that process like? What made that possible for her to be able to open up? Oh, I think it's just all about the honesty. Like when she could hear me tell difficult things. Mm -hmm. She had difficult things and she felt safe telling me those difficult things when I was open and honest with her about my difficult emotions. There was a period where I, I was depressed and, you know, kind of feeling so much guilt and regret about my past. And I would share that with her. And even to the point where I'm like, I don't want to live, you know, those types of feelings, that's super personal. Well, When I could tell her those feelings, then later on, if she has strong emotions of any negative kind, then she can share those with me too. She doesn't have to feel like she has to protect herself and keep her cards close. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I think a lot of betrayed partners, rightly so, believe that their husbands can't handle difficult emotions. It's like they can't even handle their own emotions. And so right. how in the world are they going to handle my emotions? Saving space yeah. for your spouse, right? And yeah, I love that. If you're so, when I was in the middle of recovery, I, I for sure, I was so engrossed in trying to get better that my, with myself that I, I wasn't saving space for her. But as time went on and I became more whole, more healed, more peaceful, then I could have her unload on me and carry her her baggage as well. Yeah. And yeah. That's been a journey. Yeah. That's so great. And as a side note, you, you had shared with me that art was a part of your, we have a, we share the same love <laughs> or a love for the same artist, uh, Brian Kershiznik. And uh, I might even put a link in the show notes to some of his art so my listeners can see it. His art has been very inspirational and healing for me in my own life. And it was just really fun to see that you guys had also been drawn to his work. And in fact, in your book, you guys received permission from him to use his art in your book, which really drew me to it. I just was, I could not just, yeah, I just couldn't believe you guys got 
access to all of that. I'm like, wow, Brian Krasiznik, that's so cool. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy that you acknowledge that because his art has been very meaningful for us as yeah. well in recovery. And in early recovery, we we bought a book of his, one of I think from the 90s of his earlier stuff. His coffee table book? The coffee table yeah. book. Yeah, I have that one. And we would sit on the couch and turn the pages and just cry oh, and yeah. just look at that and be like, what? in the world, how did he nail what we're feeling right yes. now? And yeah, so when when I felt God pushing me to write the book, and I told my wife about this, and she was 100% supportive of me, she said, we need to reach out to Brian Krasiznik and ask him if we can use some of these paintings. And I'm like, oh no, this is big time. I didn't, I didn't mean to go big. I, <laughs> I just wanted to write a little recovery story and throw it up on Amazon. But because of her motivation there, it yeah. happened. And I'm so grateful because I feel like those images bring so oh. much more life to the story. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So if none of you have ever looked at his art, I hope you'll either Google it or click on the link in the show notes here. Cause I, his art and I, and I listened to an interview with him one time and he said, I actually don't write anything about any of the paintings that I've done. I don't tell the story of what inspired me or what I, I want people to find themselves in my work. And I'm grateful for that because I have, as I've, I've owned several pieces of his well, prints of his. I can't afford the pieces. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I discovered him in 2006. And so over the last 15 years, the meaning of those paintings has just evolved as, with my own growth and my own marriage and parenting challenges and life experiences. And I'm just, I love that we're talking about art as a form of healing. You know, your wife is doing therapeutic yoga. There's music. There's so many ways to help really mend and heal our souls and our relationships. And I just am so grateful for all these creators out there who are offering healing in ways they probably can't even imagine or measure. Thank you for mentioning that. It makes me think that I've forgotten that my wife and my daughter did art therapy. Yeah. And they went to a, a professional yes. who had them go through this process of creating art. And then at one point, the art was defaced. And they had to deal with that. And then they were given paintbrushes again saying, now try to fix it. Oh, wow. And that was powerful. We have, a, we have one of those pieces that it's in our bedroom and yeah. it's very meaningful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so, so just as you're listening to this and thinking about you know, the traditional ways of healing, therapy, groups, 12-step, things like that, reading books, there are so many other ways that, you know, I'm going to put this in air quote, you know, kind of they count, if you yeah. will. They matter. They're, you know, I remember years ago, uh, Wendy Ulrich, and I've had her on the podcast before. She's an author and therapist, and she was doing a sand tray training for therapists about teaching us how to use sand tray with adults. And I was so curious in this, and I went thinking I was just going to learn like lecture style. And she had us all get our own sand trays and go around and pick up shit, thousands of little sand tray toys and had us go gather them. And I thought, oh, this would be a neat exercise. I probably don't have anything to work on, <laughs> right? Next thing I know, I'm totally weeping and crying <laughs> and working through all this stuff that I didn't even know was in me. And it was just very healing, very therapeutic, just by moving little sand figures around this sand tray. Wow. And I just am so grateful for all the different ways that 
all the different ways to access what's inside of us. Mm -hmm. And so if you're feeling like, oh, I don't, I feel like I'm bottled up or I feel like I'm stuck and try something else. Yeah. Right. Music, art, Santre, therapeutic yoga, art therapy. There are so many things that can open us up. So stay with it. Yeah. So that's, that's great, Tom. I'm glad we, Thomas, I'm glad that we had that little detour there. Cause I, I think that that is so important and we don't talk about it enough. Absolutely. You and your wife then felt inspired to start creating support materials for other people. Tell me about that. Yes. Well, it started with um, Dark to Light, and I really felt pushed by God to share my story. Mm. And once we had that out, we we built a, a website to support you know, what the book was and yeah. to advertise whatever. And then it kind of just snowballed. We had ideas for other articles, an article for betrayed spouses, an article for about affirmations, different tools that had been helpful for us in our path of healing. And then in 2020, my wife had a, a friend who approached her and said, hey, do you have any resources for teenagers? Because uh, my daughter is struggling and I can't mm. seem to find very many resources for teenagers. And there weren't very many. But then my, it was my wife's turn to feel pushed by God wow. to, to produce Hope for Latter-day Saint teens uh, struggling with pornography and or sexually acting out. And it's a 12-step workbook that teenagers can work on on their own or with a therapist or with an ecclesiastical leader. And it brings the power of the 12-step process to a reachable level yeah. for teens. And so that's kind of where we're at right now with, um, oh, that's fantastic. with the website, Destroy the Plague, Hope for Teens. Meditation has also been really helpful for me. Yeah. So I, I've uh, recorded some meditations there. And it's just kind of like the place where we put our creative yeah. resources and trying to help people. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And I'll put links to all that, of course. I want people to be able to access that. Let's talk about the process then of the marital recovery. We've talked about your recovery, your wife's recovery. And obviously, we've, we've referenced the marriage piece. You can't not mm -hmm. do that in the process of talking about this. But you guys are past five years of sobriety and recovery. And tell me about that. Tell me sort of, you know, from a, maybe a, just a overview of how you see that arc, how you see that process of you guys coming back together. Oh, well, there was a period where we both needed to work on ourselves. And I was working on my recovery and she was doing things that she needed to do for her recovery. And, but I think in addition to that, there was always this component of we want to heal our marriage and mm -hmm. we want to stay together. So from the beginning, we were talking and sometimes that was like we mentioned, extremely difficult. And then the time that we spend together is really important. And we don't just spend time, you know, talking about serious things. We do other things together. We like to play chess together. And that's been fun. It's kind of like our time of intellectual intimacy, if you would. Yeah, I love it. And we don't take it easy on each other. <laughs> like even when I've had kind of a bad day, she'll still want to beat me. <laughs> Mercy does not exist in that dojo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so there's love it. that intellectual intimacy and then the emotional intimacy, which we share throughout the day, but especially before we go to bed, this, the, the daily accountability. 
you've got some great couples rituals, right? Obviously like playing games, eating meals together and stuff like that, but yes. these really meaningful ones of sharing and having these, these open discussions, which, you know, you said initially started out as like safety and accountability and, you know, just for you to check in. But now it's, like you said, it's, it's reciprocal. It's both of you sharing and it's just more of a formal way to get into your hearts. Yeah, for sure. So intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy. Yeah. I don't want to overstate physical intimacy, but that's that's an important oh, totally. ingredient. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then just, you know, just caring and serving each other and doing projects together. Like even all of these the resources, I mean, that's not easy to have her edit my work and for me to edit her work. Mm-hmm. Like there's opportunities there to be offended or to be like disagree. <laughs> yep. But working through things together, even though it's hard, it's healthy. Yeah. So- yeah, especially when you've lived a life of avoidance. Yeah. You know, when there's been so much fear of discomfort, of of feedback, of holding up the mirror. And so, you know, you're getting lots of these experiences, not only just in life, just with what life hands us and not numbing out to it, but just you're inviting it by working closely with your partner in a, in a more intimate way and allowing yourself to be seen. Yes. Which exactly. is so cool. Yeah, it is very, very, yeah. it's a great place to be. Do your kids know about your story? Yeah, they do. We have a a late teen daughter and a young teen boy, and they know quite a bit. Age appropriate, of course. Yeah. My older daughter, she knows obviously more than my my younger son, but it's just well, we we just are trying to be sensitive about the timing and. Sure. What's communicated at what age and what's appropriate, but but you felt like it was important to let them know of what you guys have been through, what you're working through. Yeah, it's still a very active part of our daily life, and yeah. it would be confusing for our children not to know because they would wonder why we do things a certain way or why you know why we spend so much time doing this or where is dad going? Yeah, he's going to his group, you know. So instead of keeping things mysterious and and having them wonder to an age appropriate level, we share with them what what we're up to. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because I I think that so many parents worry that somehow they're going to encourage problematic behaviors by being open about this. And I found it to be the opposite. I think that you know a lot of kids feel permission because they're just in their struggle too. Like yeah. they they have to go through the same decision points and you know deal with all the same emotions and everything. And so to know that they aren't alone in that. Yeah. I think a lot of parents feel they'll be disrespected or lose their credibility. Have have you found that to be the case? No, but I I do want to just acknowledge again that I I know everyone's recovery journeys are a little different Yeah, and that some may not feel that it's the right time or place depending on their children or whatnot. But I have felt a lot of connection with my children in being able to, to be honest with them about my addiction. And I think when they if my wife were to just say, oh, daddy's got a problem, you know, but no, when I come, that would be different than when I come forward and I can look them in the eyes and say, I've made some mistakes and this is what I'm doing to fix those mistakes. And they can see that I'm being honest about that and that I care. Then I feel like that is more impactful to them. Some people I feel worried that if they know that dad had a pornography issue that they're going to use that as license to go out and have their own issues. Well, everyone's going to have something, but I don't feel like it gives them license. I feel like they can see 
the pain that it's caused me, the, the consequences that it's caused me. And if anything, it's going to help them stay away from those behaviors more. Yeah. And even if, even if they find themselves in it, they'll, they'll also know that they have a trusted guide that someone who gets it, who's not going to be shocked or horrified right. that they've made similar mistakes. It's, it's just to me that, and I agree with you and I appreciate you always. And I, I love, I love talking to folks who have done 12 step work because they're, they're always so careful to not act like their experience is the only right experience. And I think that respect is so critical, but you're right. Everybody has to look at their own situation and determine whether it makes sense to open up to their family about it. And I'm really glad for you that it's been a good experience and that it's something that in a lot of ways you guys can you know, support each other together, especially as you create and produce materials and just support more people. Your kids, you know, your kids will kind of grow into that world. Yeah, they are growing mm-hmm. into that world for sure. And you've said something that jogged my memory. Oh, okay. Uh, when I've when I've been listening to your body of content, which has just been wonderful for me. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, Thank you. I have really appreciated the fact that you are supportive of the twelve step programs and encourage that. I feel like there's a little bit of a tug of war sometimes between the professional community and the twelve step community and. I don't think it has to be either or at all. In fact, I'm a big proponent of both. And I feel like oh yeah. I've totally my life has been changed by the 12 steps, but I have been guided and my life has progressed as well because of the professional therapists that I've had in my life and I don't know why that tug of war exists. <laughs> I don't know, it's old. I mean, I I grew up in Oklahoma and we'd go see that play Oklahoma every summer. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it or not, but there's a song in there about the farmer and the cowman can be friends. <laughs> That's what it makes me think of. And I'm like, yeah, the farmer and the cowman can be friends. Like we can 12 step and therapeutic support. It's all, we're all on the same team. Yes. And there are so many ways to help people and to be territorial or to be self-protective. It's just not helpful. And it puts people, clients in the middle and individuals struggling in the middle. And they don't need that mm-hmm. additional tension. So I know there's different theories of change and, and ways that people believe it's more helpful and that there's problems with the 12-step community. And yeah, there are things about 12-step that I don't love. There's things about therapy that I don't love. There's a <laughs> lot of things about a lot of things that aren't perfect and it's fine, but we're just a bunch of messy people helping other people and somehow it gets done. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I'm grateful for anyone who's willing to try and promote healing. I just yeah. think that we all need as much support. And there, there's just so many ways to get to the same place. Yeah. I love that. I, <laughs> I, I love your openness in that regard. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I, I give uh, Mark Chamberlain, by the way, my co-author on Love You Hate the Porn. He was one of the very first therapists that I had met, you know, goodness, I, we, I met him probably 15 years ago, but who was just so open-minded and so inclusive and so willing to see all the good everybody was doing he had a huge impact on my thinking with that as a younger therapist back in those days. And I just am so grateful for that. So I just want everybody out there, if you're listening, just let's not draw lines and let's expand as much healing as we can because we all need it. And people are hurting. Families are hurting. Yeah. So, okay. We probably ought to wrap up this episode because we're going to record a second episode that will air next week, specifically about some 12-step topics and sponsoring and supporting and, and stuff like that. So we'll We'll end this one right now, but I do want to thank you and your wife, sort of by proxy here, for you know the work you've done personally, and I think that that puts 
a lot of light into the world. And so just the work you've done there, but also just your willingness to then answer the call to step forward. It's not everybody's call to step forward and talk about these things. I understand that. But the fact that you responded to it and you've shared it in your amazing book and these other resources, it's going to help people. And then coming down here to talk about it. I mean, thousands of people listen to this podcast. It's going to help so many lives. I just am grateful for you. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff. If you want to learn more about Thomas and the great work that he's doing, you can visit his website, which is destroytheplague.com. And you can find his book. You can find his manual for 12 Step for Teens and all kinds of other resources on there. So he's got some audio meditations and some really cool stuff. So definitely go check out Destroy the Plague dot com and follow him and the great work that he and his wife are both doing so once again thomas thank you and it'll be fun to share with my audience another episode next week and also everyone as always thank you thank you for being a part of this so grateful that there's this community of great people who are trying to heal and i also just want to always direct you to my website from crisis to connection.com where i've got past episodes of this podcast all kinds of resources, online courses, social media as well. I'm, I'm on there sharing a lot of stuff on Instagram and Facebook. So drop in, send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know how these things are helping you. Also, any feedback you have, super open and interested in what's working for you and not working. Thanks, everyone. I'll connect with you guys next week in the next episode with Thomas. Thomas.